Last week, um, we looked at worldviews in conflict. We looked at the fact that your worldview is what you believe to be so. And what you continually use to assess the matters of this life, as well as the life to come. That's why we, I was talking last week about why we want to be sure that we're looking through the right end of the telescope. <laughs> because we see that scripture interprets our world. We don't approach it, approach it with, let's let our world interpret scripture. Bad idea. There's so much bad doctrine out there where people are trying to approach it through the lens of culture rather than through the lens of allowing God's word to speak to us. Our worldview is important because it informs, it colors our view of the world around us. This is why it's called a worldview. <clears throat> In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we see another powerful contrast between a Christian worldview and a secular worldview. Uh, In verse 18, we read that for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved is the power of God. Uh, Dropping down to verse 22 in that same chapter, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, he says, For indeed Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. Why? When he talks about the Jews seeking signs, that it was a stumbling block for them because they did not like, as a matter of fact, I use the word hate. They hated, it's a strong word, but it applies. They hated God's choice of Messiah. That's why they rejected him. And they hated equally God's method of salvation because their method of salvation was all about law. It was all about do it. And they had lists and lists and lists of obedience that were actually beyond the law of Moses. But it was a stumbling block. The gospel is a stumbling, and it still is. We're told in 2 Corinthians that the, the veil over their eyes is removed in Christ. It talks about the Greeks or the Gentiles searching for wisdom. And in that world, in, in the first century world, Greek philosophy was everything. The way that they explained and the way that they approached life, their worldview was, was, was secure in what we refer to as man's wisdom. Man's wisdom falls short. The Bible's very clear. There are two kinds of wisdom. There's godly wisdom and there's man's wisdom. In 1 Corinthians one twenty four, he says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He's the power of God. You don't have to look for signs. You can trust that he does have the power. Well, we're going to talk about this morning, uh, what that power is. And he's the wisdom of God. You, you have to see that there's a difference. The power of God and the wisdom of God in a person, not in a doctrine, but in the person of Jesus himself. So if we have a settled Christian biblical worldview, that's a good thing. It's a very good thing. However, <laughs> there's more to it than mental assent to a creed or a philosophical orientation in our lives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, going to the next chapter, in verse 13, he says, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So it's not just the temporal, according to man's wisdom, but there's a supernatural dynamic at work that goes beyond one's intellect. Very important. We understand and recognize this. This dynamic goes beyond the seen world to the unseen world. As we look this week, and as it relates to now, kingdoms in conflict. I want you to think for a minute with me about the Apostle Paul. There he is. He's, he's under house arrest. He's in a rented house. With, he's chained to a Roman guard. Uh, was chained to this guy for a couple of years. And he must have had a lot of time on his hand, like when he wasn't inspired to write <laughs> letters. And he wrote a lot. Uh, several of the epistles are, are from this period of time in his life. 
But there he is. He's chained to a Roman guard, and he had ample opportunity to look at this guy, to study him. And, and, and I just picture the parallels coming about in his heart, in his mind, and then the Spirit inspiring him to write about this guy's armor, metaphorically looking at the spiritual realm that we live in and bringing that spiritual realm into kind of a tangible example as far as the armor of God goes. And we're not going to talk about it today. <laughs> That's next week. But so there he is. He's, he's looking at this guy and he's inspired to write. So in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, he says, Finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand, withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So, as we strip away the layers regarding the spiritual warfare that is waged against every living soul, we as Christians must understand what are the origins of this worldview which stands in stark contrast, in direct opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to understand our enemy. Like I said last week, we don't give them a lot of airtime around here, but it is important when we get to sections in God's Word that we, uh, that we talk about the battle that we're in. We do not need to be living lives that are deceived. This is not the time to be ignorant of spiritual things, to be ignorant of the spiritual battle that's going on all around us every day. So we begin to gain some understanding, some insights by looking first, I want to go first to the Gospel of John. In chapter 18, we see Jesus is on trial. He's been arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane early that morning in the middle of the night and taken by the Romans and the, the, the temple uh, police and all of that, the, the temple guards. They, they took him up to the Praetorium, which is where Pilate was. And, and there's Pilate examining Jesus, adjudicating his case, one of six false trials that Jesus would endure before he went to the cross. <clears throat> and in, in chapter 18, Pilate's asking Jesus, he's saying, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king? And, and Jesus, I love his response. He he's essentially says to Pilate, he says, are you, are you speaking this from yourself or did somebody else tell you about that? Uh, and before he gives Pilate a chance to answer, he answers, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now, the word now means presently. I looked it up. I, I checked it out. It doesn't mean now is just part of us. But he's saying presently, my kingdom is not from here. I like the way that's rendered in the New American Standard version of the Bible. My kingdom is not of this realm is what he says. So as we look at this, the concept of this kingdom, this is a major thread that runs throughout the New Testament. The word kingdom is used 160 times in the New Testament. This isn't a minor thing. Uh, it's used 126 times in the Gospels, 34 times in the rest of the New Testament. So we understand that this is not something that's minor. This is something that we need to tend to. We need to pay attention to because it is a major theme. So when he says not from here, as I mentioned, uh, the word there is in, in Tuthan. What he's doing, that word means to point from side to side. What it means is from the origin of the speaker, he's pointing. He's pointing at the ground when he says, my kingdom is not of this realm. Remember, Jesus is uncreated. Obviously, this earth is created, and his kingdom transcends any earthly rule. He's saying, that's, my kingdom is not this physical deal to Pilate. 
He's telling him it's not presently that kind of kingdom. Now we're going to talk about when it becomes that kind of kingdom, when Jesus personally rules. But for now, it's not. Uh, as a matter of fact, in Psalm 103, verse 19, uh, the psalmist says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. So we understand the primary meaning of the word kingdom in the Bible is not a realm, it's not a people, but it's God's reign over them. Now, the kingdom creates a realm, the kingdom creates a people, but the kingdom of God establishes Jesus as the preeminent sovereign over all things. That's what the kingdom of God is about. Forever. Eternal. It's an eternal kingdom. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says, Jesus is appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So since God's work in the world is to save people to himself, to renew the world for that people, his kingly rule implies a saving and a redeeming activity on their behalf, on our behalf. That's why the coming of the kingdom in the New Testament is called good news, the gospel. This is the gospel. It's good news. There is another kingdom in place, and we're going to talk about that. It's also why presently the kingdom is invisible, existing on the inside of those who have submitted to his reign in their lives. It's about his reigning. It's not about a physical kingdom. It's not about a realm When he says, now presently my kingdom is not from here, for now, we live between the already and the not yet. I've been talking about that. You look at the prophetic word, you see all of the things that have been fulfilled in God's word. Gives us great assurance. We look at the things that are yet to be fulfilled, that's the already and the not yet. This is the picture that we get as Jesus unfolds the teaching of his kingdom that it is both present and still future. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's teaching his disciples. They said, tell us how to pray. He said, pray like this. Part of that prayer is your kingdom come, implying it's not here. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He says, pray like this, pray for this, and we should be. It's talking about our hope. However, in Luke 17, verses 20 and 21, it says, now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God doesn't come with observation. It's not something you see. He says it doesn't, they won't, they won't say, see here or see there. He says, for indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. It's also rendered in your midst. So the question becomes, how then can the kingdom of God be both not yet present and already present? He says, pray for it. It's coming. It's not yet here. But he also says, it's present in your midst. It's upon you. It is at hand. How can he say all of that? The answer is, is because the kingdom of God, the king's domain, is God's reign. His sovereign action in the world to redeem and to deliver a people through his first coming. And then in his second coming, at a future time, he's going to finish it. At that point, he'll personally reign over his people here from Jerusalem. So we see the kingdom of God is both. He, but in the first century, in Jesus' day, he was really careful during his earthly ministry to not be identified as an earthly king. When you understand his mission, that would be the, he would be transmitting the exact opposite message to assume kingly authority on this earth. In John chapter 6, uh, we see Jesus feeding the 5,000 men. If you include women and children, it was probably 15,000, perhaps 20,000 people with a couple of fish and a few loaves. 
At the end of all of that, it says in, in John 6.15, Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and to take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. He understood that they had totally misinterpreted what he did. That sign was to demonstrate that he had the power as God to forgive their sins. But they aimed low. They, they thought, this guy's great. Let's make him king. We can have good food every day. He can do this for us every day. They wanted to sack him, put him on their shoulders and cart him off to Jerusalem. And he said, no. He, said, he sent the people home. He put his guys in a boat. He said, go, go. Tomorrow I'll see you in Capernaum. And then he went up on the mountain to pray. I love blending the Gospels on that. Probably looking out over the lake as the guys were straining against the oars in the storm and then deciding, you know, I think I'm going to go visit him. And he walks on water. Gets up to the boat. They think it's a ghost. But the next day in Capernaum, he stands up in the synagogue and he says, look, if you want anything to do with me, if you want me to be your king, you got to drink my blood and eat my body. How's that? To a Jewish boy or a Jewish girl, not a good thing to say. It was the most stumbling thing that he could do. But he wanted to get them to understand that he was rejecting their ideas of being an earthly king. So when you say Jesus is Lord, what you're stating is your utter submission to his reign in your life. How's that going? Now the word of God also presents another ruler, another domain, another kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, we read, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of I love it, the way he says it here, the son of his love. I read that and I think, wow, Lord, you took me from the power of darkness. You took me from the kingdom of darkness and you conveyed me. You took me, carried me to the son of your love. How the love of Jesus seeps through this passage. But when he says that he delivered us from the power of darkness. Now, usually when you read the word power in the New Testament, it's the word dunamis where we get the word dynamite, but I don't like to use that word. It's kind of (laughs) messy. It's also where we get the word dynamic. But that's not the word that he's using here. He's using another word. The word is exousia, not dunamis. Literally, what this means is that he rescued us from the domain or the jurisdiction or the kingdom of darkness. That's what exousia means. The New Living Translation renders this, for he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. Now, I want to make a strong note here, and you folks understand this bad theology out there. Uh, The doctrine of dualism is a false doctrine. The Bible is clear. Spiritual warfare is not waged by two opposing yet equal forces. Remember, I shared last week, we don't operate towards victory. We operate from victory. The, the war is done in, in God's economy. The war has been won. Yes, are we fighting the battle? Yes, we are. Satan's time is short. And he wants to pull everyone that he can down with him. In Ephesians chapter 1, when we were looking there, it, it says in verse 21, when Jesus talking about when Jesus had risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, in verse 21 it says, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. This isn't a we're trying to figure out who's going to win kind of a thing. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age which is to come. So as we look at this, the kingdom of darkness is that sphere of influence where Jesus is not Lord. It's the realm in which human beings bow the knee to something or someone other than Messiah. 
is referred to in God's word as the God of this world. Powerful? Yes. It's a worldview which is rooted in self-rule. Showing up as anything between, you know, you, you look on one side, you see the nice moralistic person. They gave it the office. I supported the charity. I did all the stuff. Look at me. No, thank you, Jesus. Don't want anything to do with that religion stuff. Rejecting Christ goes everything from that to the person who just kind of deflects. To the person that Paul prophesied about in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, he says, but know this. And I, I include this passage because I look around at what's going on today. I've talked about in the last couple of weeks the prophetic time clock, the, the things that are that are happening in our world that are signs of the end of the age. He says, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. He says, from such people, turn away. Look around at our culture. How things have changed in such a short amount of time. Yeah, it, it, there's always been evil in the world. But, but, but now on display, daily, different manifestations. The attitude of, of both, uh, the, say that you know, the, the polite person that says no thank you to Jesus, and the person who is in abject rebellion towards God. Everything in between. It's what the Bible calls sin. Because the real master of this kingdom is Satan. He and his forces entice people to sin. Why? Because the essence of sin is rebellion against God's right to rule in one's life. Folks, we don't preach against sin because we just want to, we want to form, we want to create a bunch of nice people. We preach against sin because it is against everything that God is. We preach against sin because the allure, the tantalizing allure, the, the lust in our lives, in our hearts, can pull us away and draw us away from allowing Jesus to reign in our hearts. I am so thankful for his grace. I'm so thankful that when I sin, First uh, John 1, 9 if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to, to forgive us for our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I was reading something that John MacArthur wrote recently, and, and essentially he said, if we could lose our salvation, we would. <laughs> and I just thought, amen. You know, I, and I'm not here to make, uh, I'm, I'm not going to rabbit trail on that because there are some things that we've already talked about when we looked at Hebrews 6 and 10. But the point is, is that the essence of sin is rebellion against God. And his right to rule in my life. This is the battle. It is the battle. It's not some nebulous thing out there. The battleground is for each one's heart. So the question becomes, how do we deal? Concerning this ongoing battle between the powers of darkness and the kingdom of God. I've got two answers for you on that. The first is if you're an unbeliever this morning, perhaps online, put in for a transfer. Turn from your sin. Give your life to Christ. I'll tell you, the time is short. There, and there needs to be a sense of urgency with the gospel. We need to understand that if people do not turn Hell is the only option. Step out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. 
that looks like a simple prayer that someone makes. They, they just simply agree with God. Yeah, my life's a mess. I have been living in rebellion towards you. I've been living for myself. I, I've, I've piled it on. And I'm seeing that it's not getting me anywhere. I'm seeing that this longing in my heart is unsatisfied. And so Jesus, I set that aside. I turn from the old life. I embrace you as Lord. Come and reign in my life. For believers, it's a different answer. Ephesians 6.10 Finally, brothers, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. He says finally here because he's wrapping up the letter now. He's, he's winding it down, but it doesn't mean that he has unimportant things to say. He, there's a lot of punch in this passage. He says, we're no longer part of the kingdom of darkness. Philippians 3.20 says, our citizenship is now in heaven. He's speaking to Christians here. And he says, therefore, be strong in the Lord. Literally, it's strengthen yourselves in the Lord. How do we do that? I call it the three-legged stool. We spend time in God's word. The, the, the main offensive weapon, as we, what we'll look at when we get into the armor of God, is the sword of the spirit, the word of God. We spend time in fellowship. Iron sharpening iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. We spend time in prayer. When one of those elements is out of whack in my life, in your life, we will suffer. We need to be committed to those things. And I'll tell you what, one of the unique challenges that COVID has presented to us is limiting the, the amount of time we can spend in one-on-one fellowship. You know, we, we get by by using blue jeans, Zoom-type application, all of that. But it doesn't replace walking into church on a Sunday morning and sitting down next to someone saying, how you doing? And them saying, you know, I'm not doing so good. I need some prayer. And, and, and that, that just that building one another up that comes. That's why we opened our church. And why we, will, we will stay open. And yeah, we've got plans that if you know, people get sick and all of that, but we need this. We need it. And yes, we honor those who are tuning in online who have concerns. And I'm not saying we don't. I'm just saying that for a time we can do that, but we begin to suffer. And part of why we opened the church was because in my one-on-one experience with members, people in this body, seeing a lot of suffering. People not being able to connect is hard. We spend time in his word because his word has the answers. And we spend time in fellowship with God. We call it prayer. More than the list, more than, I call it the shopping list. And, and that's good. We should petition. We, we are to give God our petitions. Spending time with him in prayer. Spending time with him in fellowship with God. Allowing his Holy Spirit to inform our thinking. To shape our lives. Now as we look at verse 10, it's important that we read and apply verse 10 before we read and apply verse 11. What he's essentially saying here is stay close. Recognize the Lord is the source of your strength. Well, the armor of God provides, the armor that he provides, it's mighty, it's powerful, it's efficient, it's adequate. Its effectiveness is due to the strength of his might, not ours. I don't know if you've ever tried to do spiritual battle on your own, in your own strength. That is a fool's errand. Been there. Doesn't work. Leads to, to, to misery and hardship and puts one at risk to be prey for the enemy. Understand this, folks. We can't adequately appropriate the armor of God and effectively def- 
defend ourselves in the spiritual battle if we don't have a complete submission to the fact that it is God's strength, it is God's might that assures us the victory. Jesus is our example of how strong God's empowerment can be. He walked in his father's strength and relied upon it from the beginning to the end of his public ministry. In Matthew 4, we see Jesus having just been baptized by John the Baptist. The first thing that happens as the spirit of God had descended upon him is that in verse 4, it says, And Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterwards, he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and he said, it is written, the word of God coming into play. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple he said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written. He shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands, they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. I'll tell you what, one of the things that's true of our enemy is he loves it when people refer to him as the Holy Spirit. Satan misquotes, misapplies God's word in this. And Jesus responds with, again, it says, Jesus said to him in verse seven, Matthew 4, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you'll fall down and you'll worship me. Who, whose kingdoms are they? The kingdoms of the world. When we're talking about the kingdom of darkness, we're talking about the kingdoms of the world. This world lies in the hands of the evil one. And if you don't realize that, you are not only mistaken, you're vulnerable. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written. Again, replying, responding with the word of God. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Jesus repelled the enemy's attack by the word of God. That's the point in this. He stood in the Father's strength, in his might. Back to Ephesians 6, in verse 11, he says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Why? Verse 12, For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. This isn't a physical kingdom but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, there's a lot of bad teaching on this. I'm not going to, you know, people get into all kinds of goofy stuff and, 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 and yeah, books have been written and they're entertaining and all that. But, but you know, where God's word is silent, so also should we be. I am not going to get into speculation beyond the fact that Paul uses a variety of terms to refer to our spiritual enemies. We should regard them as being on many different levels and having many different ranks. That's clear. We see that. There is an orchestrated effort is what he is saying in this. Powers, principalities, rulers. Yet they all have one goal to knock you and I down from our place of standing, to take us out from under the Lord Jesus' reign in our lives. I came across a quote I want to read to you that kind of explains the, the nature of this battle. Satan's snipers have us in their crosshairs. They know us intimately. Having studied us for years, they're familiar with our strengths and fully aware of our weaknesses. They're masters of psychology and experts on human nature. They know their prey far better than we know our devilish predators. That's true. Whether you're a young believer or an old saint, spiritually strong or weak, 
well-trained or a novice, Satan has, and his emissaries have one goal for you. Destruction. Their one great hope is not simply to cripple you, but to decimate you. Although your, their own ultimate doom is imminent, he knows his time is short. They intend to bring down as many with them as they can. Understand something here, folks. The enemy's tactics are unchanged. From the Garden of Eden to today, his tactics are easy to identify. In 1 John chapter 2, the Apostle John writes in verse 16, he says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Those three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. You look, folks, at sin that you've fallen into in your life, every sin that man can be affected by or be infected by falls into one of these three categories. It's rooted in self-rule. As I mentioned, it's rooted in pride. In Genesis 3, when we look at the fall of man, the serpent deceiving Adam and Eve, coming to them saying, has God really said? Questioning God's word. In chapter 3, verse 6, it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, the lust of the flesh, that it was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. She took of its fruit, and she ate. She gave some to her husband with her, and he ate. The fall of man, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride of life. When Jesus was tempted, there, as we looked at a moment ago, the enemy deceiving, he says, command this stone to become bread. The lust of the flesh. Worship me and, and the kingdoms of this earth will be yours. Took him up onto a high mountain to look out over the whole thing. The lust of the eyes. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. The angels will bear you up. The pride of life. His tactics are unchanged. As you identify as the Holy Spirit is allowed to probe the recesses of our hearts, rooting out areas of sin, sinful behavior, sinful thoughts, thoughts, words, and deeds. That's the basis of God's judgment. We find that those things exist in each of our hearts. Yes, we are saved. Yes, we are utterly maintained by the grace of God. And yes, sin is lethal in our lives because it pulls us away from the Lordship of Christ. He comes to you and I with the same lie, the same deception, in different packaging, with the same intent to entice us to sin, to draw us away. Like I said, we preach sin here against sin, not because we're trying to make good people, but we're trying to convey the absolute truth that sin will pull you away from God. And he is our only hope. This is kingdoms in conflict. That's what it is. This is where the worldview, the, uh, the, uh, the worldly worldview springs forth from. I'm going to live for myself. I did it my way. Horrible. Verse 13. He says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Now, the posture of a soldier in, that was either in battle or going into battle was never to draw back. He's not saying that you need to get out there and that you need to go charging in and identify these demons. And nah, 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 nah. There's so much stuff out there about it that God's word doesn't talk about. But what he is saying is that the posture that we need to have. We've looked at the, that 
Our power is derived from his power. And now we're seeing our posture in the battle is to stand in his power. We stand. We'll get to the armor next week. Talk about the protection that we have as well as the weapons of our warfare. We're going to go into 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He talks about the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're spiritual and they're mighty for tearing down strongholds. There is a way that we advance in this attack, in this battle. Here, what he's saying though, is put on the armor and stand firm. Stand, how do you stand? You stand against the wiles of our adversary. You stand against sin in your life. Take a stand. If you're allowing sin into your life, stop it. It will pull you away. You are, we deceive ourselves if we think that we're submitted to his lordship and we're involved in sin over here. I'm, I'm not talking about when we blow it. I'm talking about habitual, life-dominating sin. It, it's a huge issue, folks. And we can come here and look good on Sunday morning. I used to tell prisoners, I'd go in and do jail ministry, and I would tell them, you know, you can fool me, you can, but you can't fool God. And so it's about our hearts. What's the condition of our hearts? Is Jesus Lord? He begins and ends this section with saying that our posture is to stand armored up. We'll talk about what it means to put on the armor and never take it off next week. So what does this mean? It means that that the attack will come. It means that, folks, it's not if it's going to come. It will come. It does come. And that may be squabbling between spouses. It may be something big that comes along, something that knocks you off your pins. It, It could be anything that the enemy uses, and he is wise to pull you away, to get you into the flesh, to get you to do things in a way that pulls you away from the headship of Christ in your life. It means that we don't need to be frightened as we stand. There are times in the battle, and I I would imagine you've experienced it where you feel like, you feel kind of like, I remember a few months ago, uh, I shared about uh, Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 11 and chapter 12, there's Jeremiah. He's out doing battle. The guys in Anathoth, his hometown, they had sent out a crew, uh, they, they sent out a mob to get him. And, and, and he, he comes to the Lord and he says, Lord, will you just wipe them all out so I don't have to worry about it? And God says, I'll deal with them, Jeremiah. Don't worry about them. Now let me deal with you. And in the verse 12, the first few verses, he says, Jeremiah, let me, let me ask you a couple of questions. I'm paraphrasing, but this is what happened. He says, you know, if you can't run with the footman, what are you going to do when the horses show up? If you're having trouble in the battle now, these guys are mad at you from home. What are you going to do when it's no longer Anathoth? But when you see the armies of Babylon marching on the city of Jerusalem, not once, but three times, this is Jeremiah, do you think this is battle? It's going to get worse. Be ready. He says, Jeremiah, if you lie down in a land of peace, what are you going to do in the thicket of the Jordan when the real battle, when it really intensifies? And folks, I wouldn't be doing my duty as a pastor if I didn't tell you, look, the battle's on. The battle's on culturally. The battle's on politically. But you've got to realize this is rooted in the spiritual realm. The battle is on in the church. And it may not get easier. It might be a bumpy ride. And I'm not talking about who wins the election. Yeah, I have my favorite. But my point is, 
It doesn't matter. I mean, in God's economy, it, the battle's on. And folks, it might get worse. That's what God told Jeremiah. He said, don't worry about them. Let me give you some instruction, Jeremiah. Jerry. <laughs> I, was, I like to call Jeremiah Jerry. He says, let me give you some instruction. Suck it up. Understand what's happening here. And understand that you look out around you at the culture, and the culture in his day was horrible, godless, idol worshiping all over. The culture in his day spiritually, they were bringing in profane things into the temple. The culture in his day politically, socially, culturally was horrible. And he said, it's going to get worse. Hold on tight. Don't be afraid. Whenever Jesus is talking to us through his word and we're facing difficult things, the first thing he says, don't be afraid. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When we look at what it is to stand, it also means that we need not be uncertain or half-hearted in the battle. Is it hard? Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. There are times where I have to turn off my television. I get so upset. Yeah, I see a lot of people go, yeah, amen to that. But it's true. There are tough things going on out there. We need to be centered in the Lord, submitted to his reign in our lives, not tangling with sin. This is not, this never the time. But folks, don't get carried away. His time is short and he wants to carry you away. He wants to entice you. He wants you to get things into your own hands. He wants you to live for yourself. Live for him. Don't be uncertain. Know that there is a battle. Don't be half-hearted in the battle. Oh, well, yeah, you know, that's what they taught at church. No, this is life. This is instruction for life. It's kingdom instruction, the invisible kingdom for now. It means that we're equipped, we're ready, we're at our position, we're alert. I think about the watchman on the wall. He was the guy. These walled cities, they were city-states in the Old Testament, and God, God's word tells us about the watchman on the wall. He was the guy that stood the night watch and he watched to see if the enemy was coming. And it was his responsibility that if he saw the enemy advancing, that he would go and tell the people behind him, look, we need to be ready for the battle. We need to be standing firm. We need to meet the enemy. Not with swords and spears, We meet him with the word of God, standing in our father's strength, standing ready to take him on in that strength, in the same strength that Jesus used when he faced the enemy out in the wilderness. That's the strength. That's the equipping that we need. Last thing is it means that we don't even give a thought to retreat. Century, first century soldier, Roman soldier, out in battle, advancing on the enemy. Don't even think about turning around and running. Face him. The battle is yours. Victory. Like I said, we operate from victory, not, not towards it. There's not this uncertainty about it. We know that our king has already won the war. Yeah, we face the battle. Face it. If you need to repent of attitudes of your heart that are drawing you away from the Lordship of Christ, do it today. If you need to repent of a lifestyle that has never included God, do it today. Put in for a transfer. Go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It's easy. It's one step. It's saying, God, I have had it with the old life. I've had it with living for myself. I've had it with sin. I know Jesus died for me. He went to that cross for me. And that in going to that cross for me personally, that by 
receiving him into my life, receiving his forgiveness for all of my sins, past, present, future, that I can have a new life that counts. Is it always easy? No, you were no trouble. You were no threat to the God of this world when you're binging along out in the world doing your own thing. Ask me about the week I've had. Seriously, folks, the battle's on. If you don't belong to Christ this morning, give him your heart. Let the weight of your life down on Jesus. You'll never regret it. You'll find understanding. You'll find purpose. You'll find peace. None of that is offered out there. That, that prophecy in 2 Timothy that I read where people are just out there doing their thing, hostile, that's real. What a better way to live. Think about the, the song that we sing, the cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. When Jesus the day after he fed the 5,000 there in Capernaum, he stands up in the synagogue and he says, you know, you seek me because I fed you and you wanted to make me king. Let me tell you something. If you want me to be king, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. Horrible image for a Jewish person, as I mentioned. And yet I love what Peter said. He said, he turns to his guys and says, are you guys going to leave too? Everybody left. He says, are you guys going to leave too? And, Jesus, and Peter, those beautiful words, said, Lord, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the battle that we're engaged in, not, not in the abstract, but in the real, in the now,